Blog Talk Radio. Thanks for having me. 
Well, I am just so honored and delighted that you are here with us today, Tricia. And as I said in the introduction, I feel that many of us can share with you something you really personally explore in your book, which which touched my heart, your your own awakening to this wisdom and, and even questioning some things like, oh, you know, I was taught this isn't good or, you know, because many of us have been through a similar journey as to how we allow more expansive them in. And perhaps that's a place to begin is just, you know, who you were, Tricia, when when some of this information began to come your way and how you stepped into it? Um, Well, I think like a lot of our listeners, I was raised in a very traditional Judeo-Christian family. Um, I live here in Atlanta, so you know we're in the Bible Belt. Oh, yes. (laughs) And I have, uh, my my dad was uh, Baptist, my mother was Methodist, and we actually became Episcopalian. (laughs) Oh, yes. (laughs) Sounds crazy, but you know... There were the Baptist Church was the largest church in the in the town, and I remember going to Sunday school and looking at the envelope, which you know they were trying you were trying to get a hundred points, and forty percent of it was how much money you put in the envelope, and twenty percent was whether you were quiet, and twenty yes. percent was you know, not asking any questions, and twenty percent was whether oh. you're on time. I'm like I don't think that their value system is quite the same. You know, when almost 50% of your 100% is how much money you give. So, uh, you know, my my mom and my two sisters and I, we all kind of started looking for something that suited our, our, our spirit more, spoke to our spirit. And we found a beautiful little Episcopalian parish that was a couple of, few miles from my house. And I loved, you know, the ritual and the incense and yes. the gentle scene and you know it was very participatory but there wasn't any guilt or blame or shame i I always think of um episcopalian as catholic light you know (laughs) yes yes i think many of us do many of us do what a what a cool balance to have that that exposure um yeah that was it was really great and actually i enjoy going to the different um the different churches we went around to Presbyterian. Yeah. There was some nice stuff there, and we went around to um, I think it was Church of God. And I mean, for heaven's sakes, you know, it was a, a suburb outside of Atlanta. So there's uh-huh. every church in the world down here, and um, and so. Uh, but for me, you know, because I was clairvoyant and I grew up across some of the great forest, I you know began to ask these deeper questions. I, I found that as a child seven or eight, I could see the elementals in the forest, which are like the guardian angels of the plant kingdom. And I think because most humans can't see them, they were surprised, and they told the overlighting angel of that forest to come and talk to me when I was about eight. And he came and explained to me the vast hierarchy of being and, and dimensional realms and how the light and the sound are stepped down from the higher kingdoms down into, you know, what we know of as the physical world. And, you know, mm-hmm. I was eight. That made perfect sense to me. <laughs> you know, isn't it amazing that, that it, it does make sense to a child in, in, in such a way? And it, it seems like your story is so similar to other um, very intuitive people I've talked with who it really does come in in childhood. It's a lifelong experience. 
Well, I feel very fortunate that that was that was really true, and mm-hmm. I wound up, um, you know, doing a lot of praying growing up that someone wiser than myself would show up yeah. that could sort of help me to connect the dots because yeah. I would be very active in my dream state at night, and one night I'd be in the temples of golden wisdom with these beautiful masters, and the next night I'd be in the bowels of the lower astral plane, and trying to figure out, you know, how do I steer this gift. And, um, you know, I, I found myself sometimes looking at people and being flooded with information about them in the past or the present or the future. And other times I would try to see, and I couldn't see anything. So I was kind of mm-hmm. like, where's the gas? Where's the brake? Where's the steering wheel? And oh. who has a roadmap to all these dimensions? And how can I begin to get some control over my gifts? So, um I wound up, when I was 19 years old, I was at Florida State University, and I uh, I was in my, I think my sophomore year, and I wound up seeing a, a poster that said, The Voice of the Master. And it was just like I knew I had to go to this thing. It was one evening, and I had a film history class that night, so I was late, and by the time I got there, you know, it was like, almost over and there were i don't know 100 people there in a little auditorium and i walked in and there was a chart a god world Mm -hmm. chart of the different dimensions and this angel that had been teaching me all the time i was growing up you know i heard his voice in my head and he said this is the path i've placed you on beloved follow it and it was like a dark tunnel in form with a bright light at the end and then everything kind of resumed and uh, there were Christians in the audience that were asking, can you soul travel and um, also be a Christian? And, of course, the answer is yes. And so the person at the front I don't think was a Christian. And so um, I wound up raising my hand after he kind of hemmed and hawed. And I said, well, what do you think yeah. Jesus was doing when he was doing remote healing and when he was doing, he was able to know things at a distance and, I mean, of course he was using these spiritual gifts that are dormant yeah. in, in, in all of us, uh, but of course we can, we can cultivate them. And afterwards people came up and said, well, how long have you been on this path? And I said, well, maybe about 30 minutes. <laughs> and uh, this, this was the path of the wow. Viragi masters. And the word virag, uh, viragi comes from the Sanskrit word virag, meaning detachment. And these are great masters that have appeared really in all the cultures of the world, um, but certainly the Far East and some in the Middle East. And they have detached themselves from things like ambition and families and sexuality and money and fame. And their focus is really on charting these inner planes and uh, learning how to shift our consciousness into these higher levels while we're still living in the physical human body. And that was my kind of path. It was like I didn't have to take somebody's word for it. I could actually experience it myself. And um, so I, I became initiated when I was 19, and this is, of course, the first of many ancient traditions that I became trained in through the years. Um, but meantime, my family, when you ask about evangelical, yes. my parents went through kind of a, a really uh, rough divorce. My dad was yeah. a brilliant man and a lawyer, but he had fallen into drinking, and it was yeah. pretty severe. And my mom and dad loved each other deeply, but, you know, sometimes you can't, uh, no matter how much love you have, you have to say, you know, it's not my job to make you stop. So my mom and dad yeah. were going through a divorce, and my mom 
was really in a rough place, and she had a profound vision with Jesus. And, you know, mm-hmm. she'd always been Christian, but uh, she really opened up to speaking in tongues and laying on of hands. And my little sister, who had had some health problems as a child, and she had had one leg that was a half inch shorter than the other, which had created a lot of problems for her, she wound up having a very powerful laying on of hands where her leg grew. And so her legs Mm. became the same length. So she became evangelical. And then my older sister married a preacher. And they became fundamentalists. (laughs) Yes. And so, as you can imagine, here I'm the metaphysician, seeing angels and working with masters and still thinking Jesus is perfectly wonderful and cool, but because their theology was Jesus was the only teacher that ever was, and mine was, well, I think Jesus is amazing and he's sort of at the center mm-hmm. of my theology, but I'm studying with many other teachers that honor him and are part of the same you know, this is the thing about dogma. Yes. Dogma falls away as we move up into the higher worlds. The masters are not arguing with one another. They get along right. just fine. It's just we puny humans, so to speak, that um, want to argue over our mental ideas of who's right and who's wrong. Yes. Yes. Does it that seems make like you? It does. It seems like as you get to the higher levels, it's all about love, and then you start seeing that commonality everywhere, um, just the, the the loving, nurturing aspects. And that that's what it seems. And, and I know that we do have people coming in um, because um, they the, the show is being featured in such a way today that people from all different paths could be coming in to listen. And I know one of the first questions that some are asking and probably many of us, when we're looking at different paths, as we do, as you have, you know, we they're saying, you know, how do I know this isn't demonic? I mean, I'm just going to, I know there, there are people out there asking that in their head right now. And so so I want to just help to, to put at ease anyone, anyone who's, you know, how do you know? You know, we were taught test the spirits. I mean, when I went through this whole my thing myself, it was, you know, how do you how do you test the spirits, and how do you know that you are in a safe and loving um, place? And and so so I wonder if we could just address that for those who are who are you know just not sure what to think right now who've joined us today. Well, you know, for me, what Jesus was really all about was the heart. He was yes. about the immortality of the spirit and the power of forgiveness and the power of love. And yes. that path, of course, was called the way. Now, yes. in truth, it was called, as you know from the Sophia book, it was also called the way of the chalice or it's also called the middle way. Uh, Buddha taught the middle way, so the mm-hmm. great god of wisdom and Ancient Egypt taught the ancient way. But instead, uh, what what they really mean is when you look at something like the tree of life, it's the way right up the middle that goes from the physical world, Malkuth, the bottom of the tree of life, up to Yasad, which is the uh, emotional plane. In other words, if you can't feel your feelings, you can't feel your emotions, you have no barometer to even begin the journey to compassion and love. 
and then it goes up to the higher love, the Christed love, which in the tree of life would be the sphere of Teparoth, right up the center of the tree. And for those of you who know the tree, there's basically three columns. It's like a ladder. So there's a column on the left, masculine, the column on the right, feminine, and then there's a, a column in the middle that is that middle path. And yes. and ultimately it's about dealing with you know the ego and the dark night of the soul and yes. laying down the ego to come into a place of oneness. So when you ask about how can we know, as the Course in Miracle reminds us, there's sort of basically two forces. You could call them the life and the anti-life principle, or you could call it love and fear. And so the mm-hmm. things that put us in shame, blame, guilt, fear, those are things that actually take us away from our connection with our souls. And it takes us away from our connection with truth. And the things that put us into a place of love are the things that pull us towards the light and towards that love. So you can always ask that barometer, but the the unfortunate thing about the church, I think that in the beginning the church really did have enormous wisdom. And I think they had a lot of the great secrets. But whether through politics or people in charge that really were not mystics, they were, you know, more about um, trying to make the money to continue to propagate the religion and then eliminating the competition. Someplace along the way, even people who were mystics, uh, uh, you know, so many hundreds of years had passed where these things were. Uh, not passed down, they were not honored, they were not known, that we sort of, what we've wound up with is sort of the outer exoteric teachings of the Divine Father and Divine Son. And as you probably know from reading the book on Sophia, in the Great Spiritual Mystery Schools, there were three steps of initiation. The foundational level was the Divine Mother and Daughter. The second level was the divine father and son, and the third level was the joining of the two in balance, which brings us to mastery. And in Christianity, what happened is we got the father and son, we completely got rid of the mother and daughter, and so this tells us that it's very hard for us to ever achieve mastery because if you lose either one of those polarities, you you know, you, you can't walk that middle path. Yeah. Yes, we fall out of balance is is what happens, and and it seems um, everything has to do with bringing things into balance now. And um, I, I wonder, Tricia, um, I know that that many people listening um, have heard of the concept of heaven on earth, and how there there is a time coming and dawning of of great awakening and if i see anything that is so common to what you're teaching and others it's just that we can come together in that in that place of of we are awakening and yet i think that that many do need to learn you know what is the divine feminine and 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 even get over that discomfort because we've had ingrained in us um, the patriarchal path, as you say, you know, just that surface level, not really the entire story. And so, um, you know, what what do we have to look forward here to? And, and what does bringing in the divine feminine and the divine mother, um, why is that so pivotal to that? 
Well, um, you know, gosh, there's so many questions and so many directions I can go in this conversation. <laughs> so to talk about the future, I think we have to talk about the past yes. and then talk about the present because it's it's really, you know, our future grows out of what we think, what we believe, and what we do and how we act. And it grows out of our mindset. And to a large degree, our mindset grows out of our cosmologies or the, our theologies. And so um, when we really look back, 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus, up until about 400 years after the birth of Jesus, there were these great spiritual mystery schools in chapters all over the planet. And most of us know nothing about this because the church was very effective at basically killing, murdering, and silencing you know, everyone except themselves, if if they could possibly do it. And so, of course, they didn't silence the Muslims, and there are still wonderful Jewish people on the planet, but there were some, you know, definite exterminations of of groups, and, and they, of course, you know, the Muslims, of course, have retaliated back and so forth, yeah. and that's what a lot of the Crusades were about. But if we go back to an earlier time where... The science, philosophy, and religion or spirituality were not divorced from one another. They worked together in a wonderful golden triangle. So if you believe something spiritually, you needed to be able to look and see if there was evidence for it in the physical world. Mm -hmm. Like, for example, Mm -hmm. the atom and the solar system and the galaxy all kind of repeating the same holographic template. Or... um, and one of the things that was taught in the mystery school was something called hermetics. And hermetics is really uh, the secret language of the soul. It's a visual language that's used in the higher planes, but it also can be seen reflective down here. So, for example, um, you know, grapes look like um, corpuscles of blood, and grapes are good for the blood. Carrots, yeah. you cut a carrot, and they look like a circle with a dot, just like the eye and the pupil. Uh, the cauliflower and broccoli, that's really good for the brain. You know, So there is a whole level of science that was being taught. In the first level of the mysteries, it was healing. So you were working with plants and animals and the intelligence of nature, not to conquer it or dominate it, but to understand its mysteries and to work in conjunction and in harmony. And by the second level of the mysteries, you got into mathematics, sacred geometry, astronomy, um, and, of course, astrology at that time was considered the um, uh, study of the subtle energies um, of the, the esoteric level of astronomy. And they were actually together until the scientific revolution uh, about four or 500 years ago. At the time of Nostradamus, they were still quite together. And if you go to the Vatican, as I have, and spend time there, you'll find actually great astrological wheels because the ancients understood that just like the moon affects the tides and affects us because we're, what, 76 or 8% water, affects, mm-hmm. you know, the gestation cycles of animals, the violence rate, the sexual rate, the moods of everything that contains water. In the same way that the moon affects us, the planets do too. The planets are maybe further away, but they're much bigger than the moon. And so astrology was the study of the subtle energies, the electromagnetic energies that bathe our planet. And, yeah. of course, free will 
can trump trump anything but it's like understanding that if the tide is going out this is the time to take the boat and you know go out on the ocean if the tide's coming in that's the time to lay on your back and float to the beach mm-hmm. so it was a study of these natural energetic currents and so when we start talking about this the Archaeological and anthropological research really shows that up until about three or four thousand BC, we really were not having wars on this planet. As I chronicle in the um, Return of the Divine Sophia book, for the first roughly two hundred thousand years of life, human life, uh, as in Homo sapien life, not, we're not talking about Neanderthal or Cro-Magnon, that'd be much, much further back in the millions of years. Um, God, or the creator, was considered a woman, or a female, or the goddess. And the reason was because everybody in the world could observe that the only one that gave birth to anything was a woman. Females of every species are the, the life givers. And so, who would have birthed the universe would have been the great mother, the divine mother. And then that idea shifted to where it's like, oh, the divine father and mother, because after all, it does take the man and the woman, unless you're going to have an immaculate conception. And then it became the divine father and mother and the divine daughter and son. And as long as those were the major precepts that were kept in place, we did not have war. There were agricultural villages um, where men and women ruled uh, in partnership. Usually the line of succession was passed through the female because everyone could see that she was actually giving birth to the next child. Her husband or her brother ruled with her and beside her. He had his own power. But, you know, pretty much when the women were the major ones in charge, we were really not having wars. And so... When we talk about how this changed, um, anthropologically, what they've discovered is around, you know, 1800 B.C., someplace in there, there were these really kind of warlike guys that came down. Some of them call them the Kurgans from Russia. Some believe they were um, maybe Phoenicians that were remnants of the seafarer war race that was left from the last days of Atlantis. Some believe they were the Semitic race because they were, you know, those Hiskos kings that invaded Egypt. I mean, they were dreadful. And those were Semitic people. So it's possible it was all three groups, but for whatever reason, this sort of patriarchal dominating culture came in, murdered all the men, raped all the women, and uh, set up the thundering sky gods that had all the power, and women's power was only based on sex and beauty. And so this sort of began this sort of patriarchal age, and this would have been about the time, the age of, Aries came in, and each one of the 12 astrological ages is around 2160 years, and the age of Aries started around 2150 B.C. So obviously those cultures were really starting to form, and then they impacted the more balanced cultures. And as I chronicle in my book, and I'm sure it wasn't just the Jewish people, for a long time the Jewish people honored divine father, mother, daughter, son, but the um, priest of Yahweh really kind of wanted to be the only ones. And so uh, they kept trying to murder and kill everybody else and say we're the you know, only uh, big dog on the block. And, of course, by the yeah. time they, they got the biggest chance was 
when the Persians came in and took over the northern kingdom of Samaria around 722 B.C., those were 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel. The other two tribes did not even raise their hands to help their brothers. And then uh, around uh, 570, uh, the southern kingdom, Judea, went down. The Babylonians took them uh, prisoner and, of course, uh, knocked down the Temple of Solomon and all of that. And they, for 50 years they were in Babylon. So when the Persians conquered Babylon around 520, they released the Jews, and two-thirds of them decided to stay in Babylon. But the third that went back, this was sort of the chance the priest of Yahweh had been waiting for, and they, uh, you know, took over. And there were only like 3 to 5% of the population that could even read. And, of course, the priests were among them. And so our Old Testament, as I discovered when I started really studying biblical archaeology and anthropology and linguistics, they realized that our Old Testament was not even put together. It was not even codified until about 100 B.C. Now, I had grown up thinking, my God, this was like, you know, God's word, and it was, you know, they had written it down for thousands of years. And what I discovered is they didn't even have the flood story until after the captivity in Babylon. They didn't have the Adam and Eve story. They sort of changed the Adam and Eve story. I mean, originally that story was Babylonian, and then it came really derived from Samaria. And the story was that the gods, plural, the Elohim, plural, came down from the sky and created male and female equally at the same time in the image of the gods. And, of course, you still find references to this, and the kingdom of Samaria actually had had that. And so what we find even in the Old Testament is that you have what they call the J literature, which is the priest of Yahweh saying it's all Jehovah uh, that did everything singular. And then you have the uh, Elohim, which is the plural, the gods plural. And so, you know, neither group wanted to give up their particular understanding or theology. So you actually have... Uh, kind of dual stories even in the first book of Genesis. And I also discovered that the five books of, the first five books of the Bible that are called the books of Moses were not even written by Moses. Like something like 40% of them were written 300 years after um, the Exodus, which would be like me telling the story of George Washington when I didn't even know George Washington. And yeah. the the other uh, forty to sixty percent were actually written uh, like seven hundred years after the Exodus, and so of course the priest of Yahweh used a lot of um, leeway, making up the story about Eve ate that darn apple, and therefore women should suffer for all eternity, and men were created first, and women were taken from you know Adam's rib, and therefore women are subservient. And, of course, this is actually, as I discovered and relate in my book, the opposite of what we've discovered with biology. In biology, we find that all mammals are actually created biologically female first and that the existence of the male is due to the release of an additional androgen that allows the male to form. So, in truth, men are subsets of women. 
not women's subsets of men. So this patriarchal theology that was fostered by the priests of Yahweh, and, you know, I'm sure there were other patriarchal groups at the, at the time, too. I think the Persians were pretty patriarchal themselves. Uh-huh. It wound up being passed down and, of course, adopted. And this is one of the things Jesus was actually working to combat. As we know, he was incredibly honoring to both men and women. Yes. And this yes. was one of the problems that the uh, other apostles had with his high regard and, and teaching Mary Magdalene and some of the other female disciples. So then, of course, this has been taken to a great extreme with Christianity where, you know, that was one of the biggest threats that the early church fathers saw was, you know, the divine feminine. So, you know, all of the male apostles got halos in the first few couple of centuries. <laughs> they all got halos, including, yes. you know, Yes, but Mary did not even get a halo, I think, until around 900 and something A.D. Mary, the mother, not even Mary Magdalene. You know, Mary Magdalene, as you may know from reading the book, was uh, considered the apostle that knew the all. Jesus actually spoke very highly of her at every possible level, and how she came to be thought of as a prostitute was in... um, Pope Gregory, I think it was the first, in his 33 homily around 591 A.D., actually said, you know, I actually quote it in the book, my brothers, you know, where did the girl that, you know, um, anointed Jesus' feet and head, was that expensive ungent get it? Oh, she must have used it to perfume her body in forbidden acts you know, sexual acts, and therefore yeah. we must think she's a prostitute. That's how that dispersion happened. And, of course, the Catholic Church rescinded all that in 1979, but oops, a little late, you know, like, hey, a thousand years, <laughs> you know, or more than that, so like 1,500 years later. Oh, sorry, we were mistaken. Yeah, but, you but know, it's very embedded at that point. I mean, I mean, it's it's a little bit late. It's so embedded in the culture to think of her that way. Well, you know, and, the, those crazy popes, they went on to, like, set up brothels. I am not kidding. And they called them the Magdalens. Yeah. And they mm-hmm. basically used them as prostitutes to go sleep with for free, and then they collected all the money for themselves and the church. Can Can you, I mean... Such an abuse, an abuse of people, an abuse of people, uh, uh, public trust, a distortion of what Jesus was teaching, uh, and it was all to basically denigrate the the feminine because they were, you know, scared of it. And you know, of course, there are many wonderful Christian uh, people, including amazing mystics and saints, both men and women. And so I don't want anyone want to be misconstrued that I don't, right. you know, really honor the beauty of the spirit and the hearts and the miracles that have come out of Christianity. But I discovered when I was doing the research for this book that some of those early church fathers, they obviously either had terrible mothers that they hated or they were misogynist or they were gay because their projection onto women is just absolutely um, astonishing how uh, denigrating and 
shame-based, they, you know, how much shame they projected onto women and also onto men that honored women or who wanted to be uh, close to women. They they did everything they could to discourage men from um, desiring women. And so it's, it was just such a sad state of affairs. And, of course, you know, men will always desire women because we all desire love, we all desire closeness, and this is kind of, you know, clearly the biological plan. Yeah. <laughs> that God intended. That's, that's actually we're we're born that way. Yes. <laughs> yes, and so it's like it, it's it's it seems really crazy to say that. I mean, when you can observe all over the world that through. Um, that new life comes from the joining of male and female together in balance and that you can observe the power of what real love is not only between you know mother and son or father and daughter but between husband and wife and the opportunity uh to practice true um intentional love uh, not only at the high level but at the day-to-day levels of difficulty and to navigate that, I think we're, we're, you know, we've been coming back to it here, uh, I'm glad to say. But for a very long time, even when people were madly in love a thousand years ago or 500 years ago or, you know, we, we have a lot of romanticized stories about it, but Many times people were only allowed to marry for social or political, religious, financial reasons, financial. particularly in the upper class. It was all yeah. about political alliances. And inheritance. and Yeah. Or property. Yes. It seems like a lot of it was about property transfer. Yes. And, you know, when we start talking about that with the church, that's a whole other thing is that, you know, priests used to be able to be married and have a family. They could, yeah. you know, love God, serve the people, and still have the warmth and intimacy of a personal life. But what happened, of course, is when they died, they would leave their cottage or their house to their uh, families, to their children, to their wife, and so forth. And so there was a point along the way where the church thought, well, if we make it so that priests aren't allowed to marry, then guess what? They're going to leave the property to us because we'll inherit everything. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's how priests got told to become celibate, which is a great shame because uh, I, I think that inherently we all want closeness and warmth and intimacy and, you know, you should be able to be married and be happy and have a family and still, you know, serve your community. Um, and uh, one of the other things that happened about property rights was they forbade women to own any property. So this meant if they sent the men off to war, the the husbands and the sons, and they were killed, the women were turned out of their house and the church took the property and yeah. of course where could the women go if the relatives if there weren't any relatives that could afford to take the the grandma or the mom in she had no choice but to basically uh go into the woods and try to find a cave and gather some sticks and make a fire and you know um maybe she could live off doing her herbal remedies from the forest well these are the people that got turned into the crones which originally crone meant wise one. It was somebody who knew the forest and they were an herbalist. But, you know, after enough time of those people, 
uh, being in the forest, it was like the guilty conscience of the church. Then they demonized them and made them into witches in order to just purge all those uh, women out there that that reminded them of what they had done. So, I mean, all of this is pretty much hidden from us today. Most of us yeah. know nothing about it. You know, we go to church, and if you've got the bad version, it's hellfire, guilt, shame, blame, and damnation. And if you've got the good version, it's really beautiful and uplifting. But we never hear about the distortions in the theology or the history that has brought us to this point. Yes, and, you know, I think that people are getting a glimpse into the depths of the research in your book, Tricia, and, and just how much you have spent, how much time you have spent studying this. And when I reflect upon, you know, what you have said about about women being denigrated and controlled, it just seems so much um, because of fear, and and I wonder, Tricia, you know, I've been around, I was in Kansas for a really long time, and I happened to be exposed to a group of people. Women are, were not allowed to speak in their church. They were very conservative. And there are churches that don't allow women to be ministers. And my question um, is, if women or even maybe those men who are more connected to their feminine aspects, because there's that too, um, are more intuitive and more likely to to simply listen to the Spirit of God. I mean, to term it that way, people would term it other ways, I'm sure, but just that Spirit, that divine Spirit, then it seems that would naturally be a threat to anyone attempting to control with dogma or even on a personal level, you know, wanting the women to serve, you know, and to be in that that servile diminished role as opposed to being an equal it's about control and you know that's an incredibly good point i mean i i've actually never thought of that and i'm surprised i haven't but that's brilliant because you know one of the things I, i will tell you that um about a year and a half ago um, I uh, stepped off a curb uh, December mm-hmm. of 2013 and actually broke my left foot and um, mm-hmm. fell so hard. It was in the dark and off of a curb that went away into a, a sewage ditch, and so it was a really quite an accident. I sprained both yeah. wrists, and it was kind of a severe fall. Well, uh, the reason I bring this up is because I wound up having post-traumatic stress disorder. Well, I just yeah. thought that was like something that, you know, Vietnam vets got or something. Well, what I discovered is basically we all have a neural net to our entire brain. And a balanced Mm -hmm. brain has the left and the right hemispheres both working together and they're talking to each other and they're in balance. And, of course, because I meditate and I do a lot of clairvoyant work, I've had a really balanced brain. And that's, again, back to the middle path is that, as Jesus says, when the two eyes become one, when the inner becomes the outer, the outer becomes the inner, when the male becomes the female and the female becomes the male, then you shall see the kingdom of heaven. He says that in the Gospel of Thomas. And so what he's talking about is the spiritual technology of turning on your inner sight or your third eye or your inner gifts. And so what happened, of course, for me was I found myself just in this terrible, you know, annoyed, grumpy mood. I didn't even want to be Mm -hmm. around myself for about three weeks. 
and I had a girlfriend that had fallen the week before and broken her left arm, and she was going to therapy every day of some sort for her wrist and her arm and a psychologist. And she said to me, Tricia, we have post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was like, well, what's that? And she said, well, it's where part of the brain gets turned off. And as soon as she said it, I saw it. And I realized that what had happened is the left side of my brain, which actually is the masculine that's connected to the right side of the body, which is logical uh, and um, realistic, but also kind of pessimistic. The masculine is a great problem solver, and his job is to patrol the boundaries, see what the danger is, and uh, try to figure out how to fix it within known parameters. And so the masculine part of the brain uh, is... um, realistic to pessimistic, but it can't think outside the enclosures of what its known reality is. And when you have that side, you know, with a broken foot and sprained wrist and not being able to um, act, which the masculine is so good at acting, you become angry and frustrated. And this is what happens to so many veterans. They come home, they actually have post-traumatic stress disorder, their masculine brain is working, they can't figure out how to get a job, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're traumatized, they don't want to take it out on their families, and sometimes they kill themselves. I mean, there's like 2,500 uh, vets a, a month that kill themselves. This is what the statistics are. And so the right side of the brain is the feminine, and it is the intuitive, it's the optimistic, the glass is half full, let's think outside the box. You know, we can create our reality any way we want it, anything is possible. It's the imaginal brain. It's a creative brain. Well, that part of my brain was shut down. And uh, within about three or four weeks, I had figured out, because my friend told me uh, what was going on, I actually did the research, and one of my clients actually sent me a a seven-minute video about how to rebalance the brain, which is super easy to do. You can really do it in two or three minutes once you know how. And I teach this in my workshop, and I, I teach as much as I possibly can because there are many wonderful people that have had car accidents or they've fallen or they were in war, and they want to come back and create their lives in a whole way. But if we can't really create um, in a balanced way if one side or the other is closed down. And so this is a very simple way of just shifting your brain. They did this exercise on 10 long-term coma patients, long-term. The next day, nine of them came out of their comas. And it's just a tapping exercise where you take your left hand and you put it like on the base of the brain across the left and the right hemispheres, crossing both of them. Then you take the right hand and you spread the fingers and you tap the top of the head across both hemispheres and then you breathe so you anchor it and then you tap in the heart and you breathe so you anchor it and you connect the heart and the head the heart and the head and then you repeat it by simply moving the left hand up the the median or the meridian uh, on the top of the head, so it goes from the, you know, the back of the neck where the uh, uh, medulla oblongata is, um, or the reptilian brain, and then it moves up to the next area. It goes through the across the limbic system, which is the emotional system, and then up to finally the cerebral cortex, which is up in the front. That's the rational reasoning brain. So you simply, it's kind of like four stations, and you just repeat the tapping with the other hand, and you breathe. 
and then you tap your heart, you breathe. But it's such a simple thing to do, and it completely rebalances people's brains and opens up possibility. And I, I mention this at a practical level, but at a esoteric or you know philosophical level, we can see how when we only have the masculine in charge, and the masculine's frustrated, the masculine the masculine's angry, the masculine's violent. You know, yeah. without the help of the feminine, the faith-based, intuitive, imaginal, dreaming part of us, then we can get to the point where we do want to just blow our brains out. And that's kind of what has happened. We implode our society. And our society has been a masculine-dominant, masculine-subdominant society for the better part of 2,000 years to the point that we're doing things like fracking and destroying the water table and, you know, uh, running atomic bomb uh, experiments in the Pacific in the breeding areas of the whales and the dolphins Mm -hmm. and having oil spills like the BP oil spill, and there's another one that's just hit on the West Coast. You're not hearing very much. Yes, I know. They're not saying much, and you're right. They're, they're absolutely not. And then the Fukushima, I mean, this is to me one of the biggest oh, yeah, dangers. That's huge. <laughs> this, the, you know, we can see the poles are melting. The north and south poles are melting. We are going to have a pole shift. This is science. This isn't crazy thinking. This is actually science. We know that the magnetic fields have reversed many times in the past, and we are due for a very big one, and it's always precipitated by the melting of the poles. And so when this happens, we don't exactly know what's going to happen, but if we wind up having earthquakes like we have been having, the Ring of Fire and many other places, tsunamis as we have been happening, and and they impact nuclear sites, then that's it. I mean, the planet, we're done. So to me, I mean, all of this is the masculine runaway with a suicide plan. It's like short-term profits for what? The destruction of the ecosystem, all the animals, all the humans, all life on this planet. And, you know, it's not all the people that are doing this. I think if we put it to a vote and the people knew the facts and really laid them out, you know, 99% of us or 92% of us would raise our hands and say, stop, let's not do that. But it's sort of the, the powers that be have created this infrastructure to where they keep just trying to push the profits no matter what the cost is. And this is what I mean by the masculine runaway brain. The feminine brain says, hey, how's it affecting everyone and everything? Is this life-giving? Is this helpful? Is this holistic? No. So let's think outside the box and let's create a new system, whether it's a Nikola Tesla tap into the magnetic field of the planet energy system. But there has to be a way for us to harness technologies that are not self-destructive. Yes. And, uh, right. So, you know, it's I like the question. microcosm and the macrocosm. Yes. yes in fact, on. that's such a perfect Perfect comics. It's like you read my mind, which I'm not surprised regarding my question. Is um, in your book you talk about how personally um, we often have what you call the catalyst event, 
And so as you're speaking of all these things, and by the way, I'm on the West Coast and had just been to the coast, and we were observing a lot of starfish that aren't looking real healthy and and dead um, jellyfish on the beach, and I've heard a lot of people talking about this. And so we think about things like Fukushima and, you know, these things, they fall out of the news, but they don't fall out of the world. <laughs> and, and the thing is, is what if, you know, if this is our catalyst event, essentially, um, to now awaken to the divine feminine, you know, if we believe in the true power, as you talk about, the, the creative power of the divine feminine, um, you know, what I feel is your message raises us out of, of that fear and we say, you know, this is the time of awakening and we are experiencing our catalyst and we won't self-destruct because more and more of us are listening to, we're allowing this to awaken within us, the balance. Yes, I, I agree. And, of course, becoming aware of it and awakening and understanding what's behind it is the very first step. But then we yeah. do actually have to act. And so, yes. you know, a lot of us, I think, feel very impotent and helpless in the face of uh, changing these kinds of policies. Um, many times because, you know, um, how are we going to do it? You know, I mean, we're... Right. We're so busy, like well, little hands away, running like around the cage, trying to just make the money to pay our our bills and stay on the yes. you know the track to put our kids to school or put food on the table or whatever. Of course, it becomes very daunting. But this is really really essential because you know I don't know if the pole shift will happen in a year or ten years or thirty years, but yeah. it is imminent in the sense of. Uh, um, the poles melting, we can see that. And the reason the poles melt is because there's an internal combustion engine inside every living planet. And that's, a, you know, whether you call it a molten core or sun or whatever you call it. But it rotates actually in um, the direction of the planet. But there is a point, and these are, this is science, that it stops and it begins to go back the opposite way. And that's what melts the poles. And then what occurs uh, once enough of the, uh, I saw actually on NOVA probably 10, 12 years ago, there was a wonderful documentary about this. And they said that most of the southern points have already turned northern and now the northern points are turning southern. And when that happens, the pole shift will occur. And so, of course, they, you know, we have had such a fragile economy with uh, the recovery from 9-11. It's completely understandable why the powers that be do not want to try to bring this out because, you know, the things like the stock market are just like um, people get so scared over little yeah. bitty things. It's like what if we say, hey, you know, the poles are going to shift and we're not sure exactly when, but – but in truth, the intelligent yeah. people that should be running everything behind the scenes, I'm sure the scientists have told them. Uh, and so it, it comes down to corporate interest in terms of how long can we continue the old way and take our chances before the meltdown happens. But we really are pretty close to the edge, whether the edge is 10 years away or 20 or 30 or one year away. If, if we do not uh, handle get a handle on these things like fracking. I mean, I was just up in Pennsylvania, 
Pennsylvania is utterly stunningly beautiful, by the way. I was in Iroquois land with beautiful trees and, and so forth. But there's fracking that's going up there, and people are literally yeah. having, uh, um, you know, fire come out of their water tap. Yes, I, I know. That's so amazing. I mean, well, it's crazy. Are, and then we talk about sinkholes opening up here and here and here. Why are the oh, sinkholes yes. opening so up? True. Well, it's because they're they're tapping in to the reserves underneath the bedrock, and the the bedrock collapses, and then you have a sinkhole. So I mean, yeah. it, I, you know, I'm not even a scientist, but I can put two and two together, and yeah. so. This is something like programs like yours can bring out to people, and then the people can, what can we do? Well, the only thing we could do is make noise and to try to elect officials that are not going to be bought off by lobbyists and special That's interest so groups important. and to make enough noise. I mean, it's survival for not just our species, which seems to be a very kind of selfish species, but every other species on the entire planet. Yes. Well, Tricia, you know, I think I could talk to you for three hours, and here we're we're down to the last three minutes. Usually we don't bring it so close to the end, but I tell you, you are just such, oh, my goodness, you have a wealth of information that you are bringing well, to us. Well, I'd be happy and, and to do another show. We can do it on I, angels. We can do it on the lost years of Jesus. There's so much. Yes. Um, and yes. I'm home this summer. I actually am writing a new book, so... You know, by all means, I'd love to do do a show with you in July if you wanted to and have time. I, I would be delighted. And, well, and you I know, want, my web well, well, yes, please. My website is www.trishamccannon.com or trishamccannonspeaks.com, and it's just like it sounds. It's the Trisha T R I C I A spelling, and then Mac mm-hmm. M C, and then Cannon C A N N O N. Dot com and you'll see my books i've got like as you know i have a mystery school yeah. that has a lot of these teachings and about 30 dvds i have 12 13 online classes and we can do a class on the mysteries if you want you know that'd be fun you know i and i just think there's so much to explore here because you've really studied a great deal of information and your own personal journey is amazing as well. I mean there's just just such a beautiful interplay between the two. And and so I just want to thank you and and tell you that I'm really honored and delighted that you thank were you here so, today. Thank you so and much. and thank you. And yes. Can I can I give out my phone number too and please, I would love it please if do. and I get to talk individually cuz you sound marvelous Susan. Um my phone number here in Atlanta is uh Four zero four three five five two two one one. If anyone is, you know, is it needs it, is interested, it's also on the website. If you need to see it, but I really look forward to talking with you again. You're a doll. Oh well, thank you so much. And the audience, Tricia, it's pretty rare. I'll tell you right now, we're already in prime time on the East Coast, and we have trended as high as number two among all the live shows on Blog Talk Radio. And I've been watching it, and that's really exceptional. And that just tells me how much your message matters to people and and that you're reaching out to such a broad group. And so thank you so much for being here, and I'd just be delighted to talk to you again soon. 
My my pleasure. I look forward to the next time. Just let uh, Manzanita know, and we'll do something for July. All right. Take care. Okay. Take God care, bless. Tricia. Thank you. God bless. And Bye. for those of you leaving um, the live show, real real quick, FrontierBeyondFear.com is where you find out about the next episode. We're going to be on the air Friday, June nineteenth, three p.m. Pacific, with Sonia Grace, the Summer Solstice Special. She's been on George Nuri a number of times, and on Guy TV with him. And she's a regular guest here, which I'm so delighted to have her. So that's next week. And so let me just say to the audience, and now we're into the podcast real quick, um, just a thank you to the community around this program. I really appreciate you, and I appreciate how people from so many different walks of life and different spiritual teachings were all just coming together to talk. And you may have heard some things today that, you know, you're like, gosh, I don't know what to think about this. And that's okay. Just let it let it flow. That's what I would suggest. Just listen. Because that's the best thing we can all do is listen to each other so that we can come to understand. Come let us reason together. And it goes beyond reason. Come let us be in the heart space together and feel, feel the wisdom and the space of love that is all around us. So thank you, everyone. I look forward to seeing you next time. And welcome to those of you coming into the new afternoon broadcast. I'm so delighted to have you here. So until next time, may you find peace and love on your journey.
Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.